So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I will also answer listener questions, and sometimes interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Technically, last time, I had an interview with Chase A. Fulmer about his novella Frolic on the Amaranthin, but it feels like I should say last time in December. <laughs> uh, I talked about the story Sacred Thievery, which is part of this dang novel the podcast is named after. It feels that way because my original plan was to get all of the stories for the second quarter of the novel written and then talk about them all in order following uh, the body of interviews that preceded it, including ones that felt relevant to that quarter, like Michael Curtis, who knows all about Lankmar, which is very much the spiritual inspiration for that chunk of the novel. But that's not what happened. <laughs> what happened was um, things took longer to do than I expected, particularly the outlining of Sacred Thievery. And by the time I was putting up the second of the four stories, I did not have the third or fourth written. Alas, this is largely because I started doing much more detailed outlines of the plot of my stories, starting with Kinship and Kaltoum, the first story of this quarter. And Sacred Theory was very research-heavy because of all the stuff to do with relic theft and the trials that were used to determine whether or not a relic was legit. And that was very cool and fun and all that. But, oh boy, way more work. So the story I'm talking about today, Flighting Fancy, absolutely was me trying to do something a little quicker and also something a little, I don't know, whether or not I made the choice to run with it, and I think I did in some places, I wanted to make something that was a little more free. You know, I'm very big on grounded fiction, grounded fantasy, grounded sci-fi. I want the special things to be rare. I want the weird things to be truly unusual. But sometimes you can lean too far into your natural instincts and end up creating something that isn't even fitting for what it's supposed to be. Fantasy is supposed to have some flights of fantasy. So maybe, yeah, don't be so afraid of doing things that are kind of weird, Oliver, or even things that kind of feel cliche on the surface. But by playing with them, you can try and do something new or at least, you know, your own personal expression of them. So, yeah, that's kind of the vibe going into this one today. Also, given that it has been a little while since the last story episode, the last the novel episode. Hey, did I mention I fixed up the website and now there's really handy episode categories for you to go through if you want to go through the archives? Literally like the novel, just the episodes like this one, or just interviews, or just story consultations. Yeah, website, it's cleaned up. There's other stuff too. Go check it out at somewritinganovel.com. Okay, first novel outline episode of 2022, which will be followed immediately by another one, which will get us to a lovely landmark of the novel being halfway outlined. And I got some big stuff to talk about with that episode and what it means for the shape of the project going forward. Also, the one-year anniversary of the podcast is starting to be visible on the horizon. We're at almost nine months now since I launched it. And yeah, that's kind of cool. I'm glad it survived this long. Because it's been a minute since the last novel episode, I'm going to do a brief recap, but maybe you don't want to hear that and want to just dive into the outlining of the episode. So in that case, if you want to, skip to approximately six minutes and five seconds. Okay, super brief recap. This is a sword and sorcery novel. It is a short story cycle. That means a novel composed of short stories that strung together tell the tale of many years in the life of its main character, in this case, the warrior woman Vo, who comes from a faraway island where her people were sealed away for like 300 years. She was the first one to figure out how to get off that island, getting around basically some magic stuff that was left there by a horrible old wizard that she vowed to kill. Over the course of the first quarter of this novel, which is broken into basically four quarters, I mean, I guess everything has four quarters, but you know what I mean? <laughs> it's an intentional structure. Uh, in that first quarter, she's trying to be a hero and has kind of a vaguely sort of YA before we called it that, like Le Guin era, Ursula K. Le Guin, the author, uh, era YA vibe uh, that ends with her becoming quite cynical about the concept of heroism, deciding to work for herself instead. And she goes off to a city where the entirety of the second quarter takes place. 
It's not called Lankmar, but it is very much inspired by the city of Lankmar from the stories of Fafford and Grey Master, a pair of buddies and thieves who do all kinds of hijinks in that city, created by the author Fritz Leiber. Worth looking up if you want to see one of the most seminal fantasy things, especially also for D&D. He basically invented the Thieves Guild and all that stuff. Anywho, so we're in that second quarter right now, and we've told the first two stories where Vo makes her new best friend Tiravam in the very first story, Kinship in Khaltoum. And then we leap forward a little bit in time, an unspecified amount, but, you know, some time has passed. And in the second story, it is Sacred Thievery, where the friendship is getting pretty established, but they're still figuring out, you know, how to work together as thieves, adventurers, whatever. And they have to kind of learn how to have faith in each other, like they trust each other. They trust each other to do things that they've seen each other already do before, but they need to learn how to have faith in each other when they try to do things that they haven't seen each other or seen themselves do before. And recap. Yeah, I, th I don't think that was too long. <laughs> so yeah, right then, like I say, four stories in the second quarter of the novel, four stories about Vo and Tiravam and their friendship and their career as thieves together centered on my Lankmar, the city of Koltum. Now, that first story, friends, second story, figuring out their career as thieves together. Third story, which is today's tale, Flighting Fancy, is one where I feel like they're kind of established. Yes, and essentially, even you could argue the height of their powers. You know, their friendship has gotten quite deep. They've been doing this for a few years now, two, maybe three. And in fact, in this tale, there's just the faintest whiffs of developments that will eventually grow into the fourth story, which is where their friendship, well, it ends. It ends. So, yeah. <laughs> but first we have this romp. Flighting Fancy. Now, the spelling of flighting, you may have noticed, is a little funny. Why does it look like that? Well, don't worry, I'll get into it. But first, we're going to work through the process of how I outlined this thing in order. And the first thing I did after deciding where in the chronology this would be, and what it would mean for their friendship and their career as, you know, swashbuckling, scoundrel, thief, whatever types, was... Well, I got to go back with my recent notes <laughs> and scour them. So I did that, and which you don't need me to describe in detail, except for one thing, which is flighting something that I've been reminded of before I was working on this story, but kind of filed away. And I was like, oh, maybe that could be kind of fun to play with. Flighting, uh, it's essentially uh, your mama jokes and poetry. And yeah, ooh, how do I describe this succinctly? Well, flighting is a contest consisting of the exchange of insults between two parties often conducted in verse. Thank you, Wikipedia. And yeah, I'm not kidding. The sort of scholarship on this, such as it is, is that the modern rap battle is basically the extension of this practice that goes all the way back to like, oh geez, roughly the 5th through 16th centuries, though it continues to evolve and exist in other forms going forward. There's something called the rounds. Anyway, you can go look it up if you want to get all the details. But the basic premise of a duel of insults, often in a kind of musical verse, though not always, love it. Absolutely love it. And the point of reference I was most thinking of, and maybe you are too if you are of a certain generation and video game inclination, was a computer game from the 90s called The Secret of Monkey Island, which was one of those point-and-click adventure games within which you would occasionally have sword fights. But the sword fights weren't driven by you slamming buttons and trying to like stab the guy faster than he could stab you primarily. They were driven by an exchange of insults. And if you got like the better insult and you'd, you know, clang, 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 sword fight and like push the guy back a few feet. And if he beat you with a better insult, then back you would be pushed a few feet and so on and so forth until somebody seemed to clearly win. This piracy nautical connection thing in that game is very fitting for it to be my point of reference because I very much had it in mind that this would be an adventure where Vo and Tiravam leave the city and go on some kind of sea-based adventure, which is broadly speaking just fun. I had been thinking about it since the earlier stages of the novel, though originally I think I was going to have it as an adventure for the next brick of stories. But whatever, I'm the author, I can do what I want. And... Also because Fafford and Grey Mouser have a few very noteworthy stories at sea, even before the later tales where they retire to a basically not Iceland. One of those adventures, The Sunken Land, has a wonderful opening that I both studied in Howard Andrew Johnson's writing course back in the summer that I took, and had read before then and frankly loved it uh, even before I was told it was great. <laughs> um, yeah, it was very much on my mind when I was figuring out the opening to this story as I am fully owning right here, right now for the record. 
So yeah, once I decided roughly where in the career of my two characters this was taking place and scraped my recent notes for bits and pieces that I might want to use in this story, like flighting, and decided on a rough setting, like this is going to be at sea, hurrah, it was time to think about certain aspects, like specifically what's going on with their friendship. So first I had the cute idea that Vo and Tiravam's friendship is the boat in which they navigate their wildlife together. Sure, why not? <laughs> and then I thought, okay, well, perhaps this story could be a test in seeing how honest they can be with each other. Now it's been a few years and many life or death situations, many secret truths shared. Yeah, you know, sometimes you get to that point early in being deep into a friendship and you kind of wonder like, oh, you know, how, how, how raunchy a joke can we tell with each other? How much can I tease them? You know, what, how personal a thing can I share? Yeah, all right, let's have that be the point we're at with Vo and Tiravim's friendship. Because they're in their late 20s, Vo in particular is kind of letting loose after a very staid, chaste early 20s, um, and because I like Vo and Tiravim having a colorful series of partners, I also wrote down relationships, question mark, after I figured out the friendship angle. And sometimes I decide this in advance, sometimes I have given a rough shape, you know, uh, in advance. But this time, honestly, other than maybe a pirate, I just decided to leave that wild and open for me to discover further down the line. So, okay, friendship and partners roughly decided. What about the setting? Well, I definitely saw that as a mix of the ocean, pirate ship or ships, uh, picking them up perhaps, and a mysterious, perhaps monkey, no, ape, there we go, ape island that uh, could trigger Vo's fears of being trapped, because that's a note I have on her, right? She grew up on that island where she was trapped by magic and expected to live out her whole life, and she got free through her gumption and adventure in the very first story, Vo, which I read to you in episode 7, BT Dubs. And so I kind of figured islands for her would represent prison. So yeah, winding up on an island in this one will not make her happy. As Fafford and Grey Mouser had so many adventures that were far away from Lankmar, and maybe they mentioned it and that was about it, so is this tale with Vo and Tiravam and the city of Coltum, though it is very important to the story in a way I will get to in a minute in terms of how it sets the whole thing up. Then I just threw down some themes. I figured clearly this is going to have to have something to do with narrative since flighting, the sort of, you know, insult joke narrative thing, <laughs> you know, is a part of it. And I really like how that kind of is adjacent to the storytelling tradition that Vo was raised on with heroes and Tiravam's aspiring playwright status. <laughs> Plus there's the kinds of tales that pirates and other seamen will like to tell about, you know, ghosts and mermaids and whatever the hell else you might encounter out on the water. Stories that change dramatically depending on which ship and which port you're in. Another thing people do with stories, and the telling of them, the loving of them, and the creating of them, is to try and create meaning, right? You want to make something that means something to the reader, and if you are just enjoying the hell out of stories, maybe you look for structures in them that reinforce your beliefs about yourself and the world, and so in that sense, you are creating meaning using the raw material of the story that you are consuming. This led me to what are pretty classic role-playing game thoughts, I guess, about the idea of law and chaos and balance, you know, uh, law is order, I should say, not, uh, you know, parking laws or whatever. And that got me thinking about maybe in this we have kind of a tug of war between Vo, who thinks everything should just be easy breezy, man, whatever with rules, you know, which is chaos. Chaos sounds evil, but it doesn't have to be. Robin Hood was chaotic, essentially. And... Tiravam, who is desperately needing the universe to make some sense. Why? Well, that's coming down the pipe. But yeah, so sort of a, you know, creating meaning, navigating chaos, uh, stability and self-delusion and self-soothing. Uh, these all were things that I wrote down when I was thinking about themes to weave in and out of the tale. One writing technique that I keep wanting to use and I keep, I don't know, man, I'm just, I'm, I just have trouble. By the time I'm done the outline, I'm like, oh, it's not there. And now to put it in there would be so hard. Uh, is the idea of a motif, essentially a repeated image that signifies something. Like I always think of Mad Men where the character of Joan, you always knew she was going to have a bad scene when she was wearing a dress or other outfit with roses and thorns on it. In a similar vein, I definitely feel that like islands should be like a motif of imprisonment and worry and fear for Vo. But uh, yeah, who knows? Eh? Well, anyway, I consider some motifs like nautical stuff, you know, waves, boats, islands, etc. But then again, that's just kind of the setting. So can you really say that's a motif? I think it has to stand out from everything else around it. Um, hmm. Well, anyway, one of these days I'll figure it out. <laughs> but yeah, that was a little attempted thing and I think ultimately a dropped thing. 
The point of view and perspective remains third-person limited, so a little camera sitting on the shoulder, you can see into the thoughts of the character with the camera on their shoulder, but nobody else. Uh, hopping between Vo and Tiravim. Tens is past, of course, Doi. So that leaves us with the trajectory of the story. You know, what's kind of the physical shape of the dang thing? And I felt it should start with Vo and Tiravim on a little boat together and end the same way after everything on the island, let's say, goes to hell. However, perhaps we open on Vo being comfortable with the sea and Tiravim uncomfortable, then switch their headspaces by the end? Hmm. That does get you a nice visual metaphor with one of them having a hand on the tiller and the other lacking control, being seasick, staring into space, whatever, and then flipping them around by the end. An obvious metaphor, perhaps, but it works. I like it. And yeah, at the start, Tiravam is cradling a sort of treasure MacGuffin that they're going off somewhere to sell for big money. And at the end, perhaps Vo is cradling something from the island. Yeah. I wrote down here, I think we'll have to refine this in the writing. <laughs> yeah, sure. Kick the can down for future Oliver, why don't you? Then there's the focus of the story. Well, you know, the focus is Vo and Tiravam exploring the boundaries of a well-established friendship, creating meaning through narrative, and the quest to ultimately profit from a specific treasure that they got from deep beneath the city of Coltum, but also from the kind of PTSD that Tiravam has picked up as a result of that treasure. More details soon. But yeah, so okay, so that's the focus, their tangible goal of the survival, getting money, you know. And yep, this brings us to the last of my usual post-initial brainstorming, pre-outlining the actual plot of the story steps, which is, what's the big idea, Oliver? Particularly, what is the thematic statement? What am I trying to say or argue with this story? And so I wrote down right here on the page, you know, how can I intertwine the friendship dynamic we're exploring with the creating meaning through narrative thing that is as relevant to the friendship as the attempt to comfortably relate to the cosmos itself. Because it needs to be more definitive than some, you know, the only constant in life is change thing. Some sometimes more order, sometimes more chaos, sometimes uh, the waves are high, sometimes the water is placid. Non-statement the likes of which I had at the end of the earlier draft of the Vaux tale, which I talk about in the very first episode of the podcast. Whew, man, we're getting some continuity here, it seems, but don't worry if by some fluke this is your very first episode, you do not have to go back and listen to anything before you listen to the rest of this one. As sometimes happens, I saw something in someone else's work that helped me kind of pull it all together here with my own work. Very simple, there was a Tom McHenry comic which I will link to in the show notes for this so you can see it for yourself, where you don't even need the whole comic, just a line from the fourth panel of the strip where one character says to another, just feel it, dude. No more need to contextualize it via media. And I was like, oh man, what a great line. That feels like something Vo could be saying to Tiravam near the end of this story. Or maybe even earlier, who knows? But the point is, that, you know, one of them is saying, just feel the universe, man. Chaos, yeah, whatever. And Tiravam, I like the idea of the aspiring playwright using stories that we're familiar with to try and create meaning, perhaps through making constant references. Oh, this is just like that. Or, oh, well, these story conventions seem to be happening in our you know, lived life. And if that sounds metatextual, I guess it is. But honestly, in real life, I am surprised at how often, especially when I was younger, I would just look at something and be like, oh, of course this happened. And then I have to pause and go, wait, am I basing that, of course, this happened on my life, my lived experience? or on what I see in movies. <laughs> so from this, I figured out what I wanted to argue, something I believe in strongly and that I want to push through this narrative, which is as follows. The thematic statement of flighting fancy is, we create and care about meaning. Nothing else does. Certainly not the cosmos, and that's fine. That's not what it does. Yeah. We being humanity, or broadly speaking, sentient life, I guess, in a uh, fantasy series with uh, other species, which I'm very skimpy on in this book, but they will be seen later. So with the thematic statement achieved, I felt like, okay, I've got all these base elements of, you know, the focus, the trajectory, da-da-da-da-da-da. I can now start thinking about, like, what happens in more detail. And I just kind of riffed a bullet point list, which I'm not going to read because I'm going to just expand upon it when I talk about the plot outline of this thing. But... 
I just want to point out as I read this, it kind of blows my mind because that bullet point list is roughly where I would have probably stopped in one of the story outlines of the first quarter of this book, which going by my dating on here, I like to put a little date each time I write in it so I can really track my progress, means I would have had this thing outlined in about two weeks. I kept going and it didn't take as long as the previous story, but for comparison, that previous story took, uh, Secret Theory took about 10 weeks. So yeah, that bullet point outline of events was followed by me actually having, not exactly a dream, but waking up at three in the morning and just going, oh, and I'm full formed. I felt like I had the opening of this thing in my head, which I will share when I get to the plot thing, but just telling you the order in which it came to me, it came here. However, I went back to sleep and woke up the next day, furiously wrote down what I remembered from my 3 a.m. epiphany, brainstorm, whatever. And then I was like, oh, I can't really go into the plot just yet. I mean, I could always, I could do whatever I want. I'm the writer. But I realized there were three big ideas in this story, each of which kind of have a list of related subconcepts that were I to build those lists, I would be kind of tilling the earth. You know, I'd be kind of giving myself stuff I could pour over while doing the plot outline that would help me do said outline. So what were those three ideas? Well, one of them was seeing life through stories. So I made a quick list of lots of manifestations of that idea. For example, reference humor, expecting events to follow dramatic conventions from stories, interpreting others' speech and action through tropes, which is troublesome, I think, given that stories are always trying to gin up conflict to be entertaining, religion and conspiracy theories bringing up order and reason through, again, storytelling, and then just sometimes that kind of way where you're like, oh, you know, what's happening here in life is fine, but it'd be much cooler if it was like that scene in such and such. Satisfied with that list of ways of expressing this idea, I moved on to the second of the three big ideas, flighting, where I just kind of made some notes uh, along the lines of what I've already explained to you earlier in this episode about like, what the heck is it, you know? Made a few research notes about famous examples of it, just stuff to generally get me going. By the way, in that research about flighting, I discovered that there was in fact no actual secret of Monkey Island that ever got revealed in The Secret of Monkey Island. Gasp! Then I made some quick notes about like how many flighting matches do I want to have in this story and roughly where will they fall and what will they resolve? Finally, I moved on to the third big idea, the testing the boundaries of friendship and just made a quick list of every way I could think of that people do that. For example, seeing each other's bodies, not that you might be like, hey, let me see your butt to see if we're good friends. But you just, you know, <laughs> if that happens by accident or whatever, that can be a test of your friendship. Telling deeply personal stories insulting each other playfully and seeing how far you can go, throwing deeply personal stories uh, back at them as insults. You know, you can really hurt the people you know well and love, as we all have experienced at some point in our lives. Sharing opinions you fear being judged for, sharing personal habits you fear being judged for, seeing someone at their physical worst and taking care of them, like the classic holding someone's hair back while they have a big old barf, telling you when you're being a dick, do you or don't you tell them? Do they or do they not tell you? Hmm. Difficult conversations, like telling them something they don't want to hear, maybe, but they need to hear, you assume. Are there other ways of testing the boundaries of friendship that I haven't thought of that don't fit into any of these categories I've just mentioned? I'd be curious, you know, if you have any thoughts on that, by all means, um, I guess you could email me at so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at, at so underscore writing. Uh, maybe it's time for me to make a discord for this show. Are there enough people listening who would like to chat about this stuff on the show that I should make a discord server? Let me know. <laughs> okay, so I had my little lists and research there of the three big ideas, fleshing them out before I try to apply them to the story. Oh, hey, the story. What's that? Well, I write it down for myself again. I mean, I, it sounds like I'm doing some things just for the podcast, just to explain them to you. But honestly, I am forever narrating my own stuff back to myself. So yeah, for myself and for you, I wrote story. This is the story of two good friends testing the limits of their friendship while trying to sell a valuable treasure, the acquisition of which traumatized one of them, Tiravam, leaving them struggling with how to create meaning in a cold, uncaring universe. And so we enter the big, meaty, next-to-last thing that I do with these outlines, which is figuring out the actual events, the plot, during which I hit a wall that forced me to kind of innovate and change how I do this. So yeah, I'd be curious to hear what you think about that as well. All right, our story begins with that opening that came to me at three in the morning that is ever so loosely based on the opening of The Sunken Land by Fritz Leiber, an opening maybe I'll read after the outro music as a little bonus for people who want it. Yeah. Hugging the coast. 
because that's how Vo knows how to boat, right? She could only really fish out to a certain distance before the magical prison thing kept her and her people on that island, just far enough to get fish. I mean, they didn't want them to starve. So right off the bat, we're going to have kind of a fun contrast with Vo pulling off a cool, small boat, boating move for navigating the water because she would know how to do that with the fact that she also is completely unfamiliar with being properly at sea. And this opens with them realizing eventually that they are kind of lost. I like the idea of part of why they wind up getting a little lost, losing sight of the coast, right? Happening because Vogue gets distracted by being irritated with Tiravam, who is sitting on the other end of the boat, just kind of looking bummed out, for still not sharing what weird cosmic dislocating, you know, sight they saw when they plucked the treasure that they were going off to sell from the plinth or platform or whatever deep beneath Coltoom in perhaps an old Coltoom, you know, the original city that sunk beneath the sand and was built over with the current one. Vo could help bring the reader up to speed with where we are in their respective careers by harassing Terravan with something better written than this, but essentially saying, you know, years of friendship, all the things we've told each other, and yet, you know, you still won't tell me what it is, what in that vision you had when you picked up the treasure. So having established their goal of, you know, we've got this weird treasure we dug out from beneath the city that we want to take to a buyer in another town who will give us the best possible price for it, and establishing the effect it's had on Terravan and all that kind of thing, well, then we realize, oh, the coast hasn't been seen for a while. Then, then, I'm thinking, a slightly fantastical pirate ship comes in from the sea through thick mist with a hinged mouth of sorts that scoops up our heroes. Now, remember what I said about testing your friendship and bodies and that kind of thing? I'm thinking maybe at the last second, Tiravam hands Vo the treasure, which... I still don't know precisely what it looks like. It kind of doesn't matter, but I'm imagining something about the size of an egg and asks Vo to hide it, quote, where the pirates hopefully are too decent to look. And Vo doesn't challenge this because Tiravam's male today by gender. This is a whole thing discussed in earlier episodes. I, don't, I won't stop for now. And Vo respects this big ask, even though Tiravam is assigned a female at birth and thus could hide the egg-sized treasure where he is asking Vo to hide it on her person. And that's the opening of the story, as it came to me at 3am one night. When, after working out those other things I talked about, I returned to the whole concept of what is the plot of this dang thing, I just kind of wrote down, you know, hey, I still like that opening, it's great. Let's establish the order of information. The order of information is really key because it transforms the reader's perception of the story just as much as the order of events. And so I wrote, you know, open on the boat, cool boat move, Contrasting moods and boating experience, you know, Vo from the island, uh, Tiravan from a landlocked, mostly agrarian country. Thus, underneath the cosmic PTSD situation, Tiravan is also just out of sorts because they have no clue about boating. <laughs> right then, in this opening conversation, while they're boating along the coast, first I would want to establish why they're traveling to sell this little treasure that they got. Tiravam's sort of feeling cosmically dislocated and trying to battle that by being like, oh, well, whatever, what we're doing right now, it's just like a story uh, that I've heard, which is itself a kind of story that's been told many times before. And then I might introduce a device I want to play with over the course of this, which is a story that is told in various ways, in various places, a mutating sea story. And we get its first version here as Tiravam uses that to be like, oh, this is like that story. Desperately trying to cling to the safety rails of meaning in a meaningless universe. And then Vo kicks dirt all over that by bringing up a different version of the story just before the bloody great big pirate ship with a mouth, kind of like a big hinged cargo planes like loading opening coming down to, you know, scoop them up. It scoops them up, destroying their funny little fishing ship, but otherwise leaving them uninjured as it swallows them into its hold. After a quick verbal jab about, you know, maybe you can ask the pirates which version of the story is right, Tiravam asks Vo to hide the small treasure on her person. And the opening is over. New heading for this part of the plot, The Pirates. Maybe I can have a narration chunk detailing the apparatus that allows the pirates to scoop up and quote-unquote eat Vo and Tiravim. Maybe even tie it into the myths of the sea story that both Vo and Tiravim have different versions of. I can definitely see incense braziers being lowered into the belly enclosure, burning sleepy time gas, causing Vo and Tiravim to fade to black along with our story. We have them awaken, 
in chains, rowing with all the other poor souls being taken to trade with islanders who need a steady stream of sacrifices. Islanders who sacrifice people, don't worry. I'm very aware of the racially insensitive places that could go, and that's not where it went, but we're not there yet. We're still with the pirates. So Vo and Tira are in chains, rowing with all the other poor souls, realizing that they have been disarmed, disarmored, right? Their, you know, chain shirt or whatever has been taken, and de-pursed, right? <laughs> Any gold or whatever they had on them, plainly taken. But Vo checks to discover the pirates are decent, at least. Though, as I wrote that, I very quickly was like, oh, wait, I think she's just no. <laughs> Between here and when I write the first draft, I suspect I'll want to run that by someone of the female sex. Tiravam compares their situation to a play only he knows, which is another sort of irritating aspect of people living in stories that I wanted to convey. Vo asks what happened to those enslaved characters in that story. Tiravam's answer involving fantastical elements isn't actionable. While listening to Tiravam, Vo has been testing the links in her chains and has found something much more practical, a weak link. She wrenches at them, half lifting the bench up, slamming everybody back down with her mighty muscles. The noise attracts the slave master, I guess you'd call them. I gotta look up what the position is actually called, but you know, the pirate with the whip who's at the other end of this part of the galley who's like, you know, keep going, slaves, whip, whip. Tiravam will distract that pirate from whipping Vo by asking what version of the sea story from earlier he's heard. As they chat, Vo runs the chain through her fingers trying to find a weaker link. Perhaps Tiravam impresses the pirate with a pithy literary observation, something that shows off that Tiravam is an educated former noble. Just before crash, Vo found the right link and tears free, whipping the pirate with her chains. The rest of the slaves laugh and shout and scream. It's chaos, you know. In a flash, the captain and let's say a dozen more men are downstairs to quell this uproar. By this point, Vo has fully freed herself, but is still trying to search the struggling whipmaster for the keys to free Tiravan. At this point, I thought we could heighten things a bit by making the captain in a relationship of some kind, romantically, with the whipmaster. And so he gets really intense and is like, you can't fight ten men at once, not even a bruiser like yourself. We'll kill your friend, you know, Teravan, uh, while you fight us, if you fight us. And Vo's like, I'll kill your slave master, you know, after spotting similarly colored hair to the whipmaster woven into the captain's beard which I thought would be a fun cultural signifier of romance that Vogue could recognize perhaps from time spent in the very multicultural taverns and inns of the port city of Koltum. So we have a standoff. The slave master, whipmaster, whatever, manages to choke out something like, I know they aren't our kind, but the one in chains is learned and could be a worthy opponent in a duel. After Vo and Tiravam's confusion, you know, what's education got to do with a duel, is resolved. The captain, explaining how flighting became a thing among the Coltoom Coast pirates, so that they weren't slaughtering each other or following stupid captains, Tiravam agrees to the idea of a flighting duel. Vo makes a boastful plea to let her fight with her fists. Tiravam criticizes her increasing reliance on violence, perhaps citing something deeply personal that Vo told Tiravam about her island childhood, testing that friendship. Also, Vo's increasing bloodlust is one of those little foreshadows of their friendship falling apart in the next story. And then, Tiravam sets the terms of the duel with the pirates. If Tiravam wins, he and Vo are free and will be let off at the next port. If the captain wins, Vo will release their lover slash slave master whipmaster. Vo and Tiravam go back in chains, and Tiravam will help the captain ransom him, Tiravam, back to his noble parents, mentioned when bragging about the education to promise an entertaining flighting duel. And then Vo asks a question that I found myself wondering about at this point. She says, But who shall judge? Fairly inquiring about bias. The pirates, of course, will want to judge their captain the winner. The slaves, well, they'll probably judge against the captain, but who's to say what they'll do? And obviously, Vo can't be a one-person judge of the fight that her best friend is in. So, after considering a few possibilities, I decided to come out in favor of what the captain then explains back <laughs> to Vo, which is that 
All pirate ships operating along this sort of not West African medieval coast that uh, Coltoom sits on pay dues to an independent body who provides a flighting judge and referee to each ship in the guild, rotating them whenever possible, you know, at port or guild meetups, etc., to help prevent meaningful relationships developing between ship's occupants and their judge. At which point, I kind of like the idea of Tiravan being like, a pirate's guild? All incredulous. If the criminals in charge of cities and nations are organized against us, then we criminals who plunder their treasures must be too, says the captain. As they're led up to deck, Vos says to Tiravan, See, there's more order in the universe than you thought. Tiravan just mutters, you know, his noble sensibilities offended. Oh, sure, next thing you know, when we return to Coltoon, there'll be a thieves' guild. <laughs> Which, I don't know, is maybe too on the nose, but I also kind of just like it as a cute nod to Fritz Leiber, who came up with the whole concept of a thieves' guild. Now, as they all go up on deck, Vo does some thinking. Tiravan might have the education, might have more words, but Vo can see her pal still shaken, having some kind of, you know, cosmic sight PTSD from just before the story begins, does not have the confidence for a braggadocio competition, essentially. So Vo puts the slave master at Tiravan's mercy, you know, he'll kill her, he doesn't give a shit, you know, kind of thing, and asks to substitute. Seeing Vo as the muscle-bound lunkhead of the two, and therefore easy to beat in a contest of wits, the captain grins and accepts. Vo overhears a slave mutter, you know, this'll be boring now. Then she pats Tiravan on the shoulder reassuringly before stepping up to the match. The captain and judge also take position, and then it's time to establish the rules. I figured best two out of three exchanges. The judge decides if it turns physical, you lose. And finally, this is as much for me, the writer, as anybody. Keep your flight to roughly four lines. And at the end, the winner drinks, then offers a drink to the loser. No hard feelings, regardless of the result. Coin toss for who goes first, and flight. Now, did I write the actual exchange between Vo and the captain for this battle? No, that's future Oliver's problem. This is outlining, and that's basically dialogue, and uh, see, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I might be regretting this choice down the road, but I think I'll be okay. Writing people wittily insulting each other is something I'm not too bad at, and making up dumb songs and dumb rhythms and dumb poems, also something I'm not bad at. So I have a little faith in future me who will take care of the actual dialogue for the flighting match. The match happens. In short, Vo wins the flighting battle with the captain. Turns out, she got pretty good at flighting in her village way back on the island, though they didn't call it that. Flighting as a means of bloodlessly resolving conflict could be a big deal, not only for these pirates who don't want to go around roasting each other when they've got to worry about the authorities already and monsters and whatever else, it could also be a big deal for a small village on a small island who are absolute blood enemies with the other small village on the other side of the island. You can't have people within your own group killing each other over this, that, and the other thing when you need every able-bodied person you can to fight the other buggers on the other side, right? Thus, with the win, Vo and Tiravam are given their things back, and they are allowed limited freedom above deck. Their little ship, as I mentioned, was badly damaged when it was scooped up, but Vo and Tiravam will be dropped off at the first port after the pirates make their delivery. Queuing, of course, Vo being like, oh, where are you making your delivery? <laughs> Smash cut to, <laughs> well, narratively speaking, if this was a TV show, we would be smash cutting to the boat being almost at the island with it just appearing on the horizon as uh, they're coming in. But in terms of me writing this thing, it was smash cut to me having to stop and answer a bunch of questions that I'll just express the answers to through the storytelling. But, you know, things like what exactly is the religion of these island people and who exactly are they? Where did they come from? And remember how I said I really didn't want to go with the sort of stereotypical and pretty kind of racist or very easily turns racist anyway thing of a bunch of, you know, African looking islanders or maybe Filipino looking islanders, whatever, all going gaga, 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 making weird noises is a white guy's idea of a native language while throwing spears around and threatening to chuck uh, a beautiful young white lady into a volcano. Yeah, not what we're having here, but what do we have instead? Well, I want to give a big shout out to a listener of the show, uh, Adam, aka Calicotherix, on Twitter, Discord, and presumably elsewhere, uh, an accomplished writer, uh, by the way, who sparked something in my imagination by posting something pretty cool, which I can't find right now, gosh darn it, but it was a pretty cool piece of research, essentially about a group of quote-unquote barbarians who were raiding civilization and having a good time doing it in our actual lived history, 
who it was theorized were rebranding themselves every once in a while as a whole new exciting group of barbarians, just changing their clothes and what weapons and you know, how they fought and stuff, just to kind of throw people off. And I love the idea of Kaltum being threatened by what they think is a whole bunch of different groups of barbarians, and there's always new ones every year, nah, when it's really just like a really ambitious, perhaps uh, I would like to think sort of multicultural group of bandits who are organized and uh, I guess enjoy sewing, uh, making cool outfits for themselves every once in a while. So yeah, I might go back into the previous two stories of this and thinking about it with the next one and sort of threading little clues that that might be what's going on and confirm it later in the book for funsies. Why not? In the meanwhile, here, I kind of like the idea of a break-off of that sort of multicultural group, break-off group, going to the island because they heard of something which could grant them incredible power and wealth if they just sacrifice, um, you know, people to it. More details in a moment. But yeah, so multicultural mainlanders, and this is also good because aside from avoiding the racist trope of, you know, just like an isolated group of people who are, yeah, what I've said before, uh, it also helps explain the language thing because these mainlanders would, you know, speak a bunch of different languages of all the different peoples they're raiding, presumably, and trading with and so on. And so that would be why the pirates can actually talk with them and why I can avoid having to have a single translator or some sort of magic nonsense to explain why the characters coming in on the boat can interact with the people on the island. Right then, back to the narrative. Vo is on the fore deck, whatever that's called. I'll look it up later. The front of the damn boat. <laughs> up top, staring ruefully at the island in the near distance. She's spent the past two days learning the ship, especially life raft locations. She will not be trapped on another bloody island. It looks to her like a grim prison. She broods. Tiravam, ten feet to the right, is making out with a male pirate. When Tiravam's mouth isn't on him, it's wrapped around a small jug of hard liquor. Bo is like, I don't trust this island, you know? And Tiravam is like, this island is an absurd cliché. <laughs> male pirate kissing his neck while he says this you know this is just like and you know whatever it's going to be called it's going to be a play that's essentially the cliche that i you know i've been mentioning you know the idea of the island where a bunch of like local natives uh you know make a bunch of ooga booga noises and throw a white lady into a volcano because looking ahead at what's coming their way this is what tiravam assumes is the precise scenario to which Vo replies fairly, I don't see how that makes it less threatening, you know? If the uh, sacrificial virgin just tells the island cultists they're a cliché, will that do anything when they're sacrificed to the volcano god? You know, if I tell a large ape it's a cliché, will it become unable to rip off my arms? <laughs> Thus the island fills ever more of their view. Tiravam doesn't answer, mouth busy again. Irritated, Vo asks, you know, could you take a break from your beloved there and spare me some company? He's your third lover in the last two days since I won our freedom. Teravam's like, you're one to judge. You've been, you know, chased on this ship, but back in Coltoom. Yeah. And then Vo's like, I don't judge. It's just uh, unusual for you, you know? The pirate senses they should slink off and is grateful when the captain calls them, you know, so-and-so, get over here. Tiravam gets back to drinking, and Vo continues saying, you know, you love love. You make life plans with one-night stands, so yeah, I'm a little worried about you behaving this way. And Tiravam's like, you know, don't waste time worrying, you know, slugging back, you know, the last of the drink, staggering, dropping the jar into the sea, the amphorae, the whatever, the bottle, looks down to see it swallowed up in the inky blackness. Vo looks down with them. They both look up to see the volcano of the island looming over them. It's a shadow draping the ship. Their gaze moves down a series of statues along the side of the volcano, marking a sort of switchback path down the volcano to a layer of jungle, and then further down to the beach where several dozen cultist islanders await them, just left of what looks like a high priest of sorts. And then, you know, Tiravam's like, that is a big ape. Which is maybe too quippy, I don't know. Maybe they'll look at that with fear. I gotta think about the tone here. Um, but uh, yeah, I do kind of like the idea maybe of looking at the ape and then like seeing sort of an emptiness in its eyes somehow and the ape locking eyes right back with Tiravam. Because hey, you gotta have a large, unusually intelligent ape if you're gonna have a cliche sword and sorcery story kind of happening, right? But yeah, and kind of a literary match cut. We go from the unsettling locking of eyes between the unusually smart ape and the afeared Tiravam to blammo, everybody's on the island, the ship has landed. And the you know we're going to be seeing the eyes of an absolute pocket prince, a really handsome, relatively short fellow, an islander. We slowly, well, islander in quotation marks, like I said earlier, we slowly zoom out from him as described by someone falling in love, revealing at the end that Vo is the one falling in love. 
He's holding tools for woodworking. That's going to become relevant later. The pirates are leading the slaves, or maybe the excess slaves they don't need for rowing, off the ship. Tiravam's pirate lover explains that the winds blow strong from here and should carry them swiftly back to the nearest port, where the cult's payment of volcanic gemstones can easily buy them a minimum of replacement slaves for rowing the ship around. And then he's like, and our ship can scoop up enough unlucky fisher people to get us another load to sell with plenty of profit. On the other side of the clearing between the beach and jungle where this is all happening, Bo tries to speak with the pocket prince woodcutter, and is surprised she can. He explains how the islanders-slash-cultists are former quote-unquote barbarians who found a kind of religion in seeking power on the island, not, you know, natives, and thus cultomese, wherever the heck <laughs> it'll be called, is not their first language, but, you know, they get by. And, yeah, he's like, you know, but do tell me more about yourself. And Vo's like, well, I'm from an island, actually, and uh, you have wonderful hands for a craft person. Back to the narrative of me writing this story, it was at this point for about a little over a week, I just got really tangled. I couldn't figure out the order I wanted of events versus order of information and how those two would, you know, interact or how the events would present the information and so on and so forth. I just went, ah, and writing in the notebook just, I don't know, it. I felt like it would lock me in at each stage in a way that would be, yeah, I don't know, it just caused a snarl in my head. Not wanting to be dogmatic about working in a notebook so that it sabotaged me, I broke what I've been doing on this project the entire time thus far, and I just went over to Word, and I made a two-column table, one for order of info and one for order of events, and then did kind of a beat sheet, listing out all the events in the rough order that I felt made sense down the one column and all the information I wanted the readers to learn in the order I wanted them to learn it on down the other column. Moving items up and down, I eventually got the order that felt right to me, and what I did to synthesize that was to then just make a bullet point list separate from the table entirely, we're moving away from that, of the events, and then under each item, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, when there was a piece of information to go with that event, I would make it like a sub-item, so like Two is Vo sees Terravam chatting with their pirate lover. The trade with the locals seems to be going well, and a feast to celebrate the deal is being laid out. Hurrah. Then you have, like, underneath that, 2A is information. Terravam assumes the island locals sacrifice a single virgin to the volcano, having seen so many plays and read so many stories along those lines, followed by 2B. They came here seeking power to vanquish their enemies, which they think will be given to them by the gods if they pour enough human sacrifices into the volcano. Then we go on to three, Vo charms and slips away with the local word maker. You know, show me your workshop, buddy. Uh, then we have 3A, the locals, quote-unquote, are an offshoot of the barbarians we keep hearing about. 3B, no, the gods don't care about if the sacrifice is a virgin. Virginity is a construct, after all. Would, like, but virginity be partial credit? No, that's stupid. Also, I can't believe I... I know I could go back and edit it out, but why? You know, it's done. I gotta commit to uh, having the words but virginity in this podcast. Good grief. Anyway, this combined order of info and events, you know, numbered list for events, subheadings in letters for info, is how I finished outlining it. It caught my brain out of the snarl. And so I think it's a, not a bad technique. And for the next story, I'm going to experiment using it for the entirety of the outlining of the story once I've done all the brainstorming stuff preceding that. I could be wrong. We'll see how that goes. And I'll tell you in the next episode. But I suspect it might be a nice way of splitting the difference between wanting to work faster, but also wanting to have a good level of detail in the outline so future Oliver doesn't have to do as much figuring out as he probably will have to do when writing the first act stories where I didn't do this level of detail. To be clear, the working faster thing came from the freedom working digitally gave me to quickly and easily, as opposed to sitting there with an eraser and driving myself nuts uh, in a notebook, list events and information out of order to just throw it all down as I think of it and then shuffle it like a deck of cards into, well, arrange it like a deck of cards, I suppose, into an order that worked best for my story. Okay, how does that story outline end? Well, uh, yeah, so uh, Vo charms and slips away with the ward maker, you know, blah, blah. Tiravan keeps chatting with the pirate, but then learns something that makes him decide to play the hero. He can't see Vo, but ah, she's done with the hero game anyway, right? And what he learns is that the local sacrifice, like all of the slaves, just pour them into the damn volcano to appease their god. Tiravam then challenges the local leader to a flighting match for the lives of the slaves, gambling the cosmic sort of horror treasure that Vo and Tiravam have been hoping to sell. Why does Tiravam get all uppity about a bunch of people being sacrificed as opposed to one? 
Well, honestly, this made me think about how, you know, maybe Tiravan was accepting what matches stories they're familiar with and being shaken by what doesn't, which is something I'm going to have Vo snap on him about later uh, in the story. But yeah, it just felt like something where I think if we watch so many stories about misery, we sometimes accept a certain level of misery in our surroundings. So Tiravam is going to win the flighting match against the local, uh, the locals, by the way, locals, quotation marks, by the way, uh, adhere to this because of, you know, culturally interacting with the pirates and also, as I say, ultimately being from the mainland where flighting is known about. However, the island does generate some of its own culture from the isolation. And one of those things is that flighting is seen differently on the island. It is not the battle to resolve the thing. It is the precursor to the actual battle, a physical battle to the death. This is explained to Tiravam, who is concerned, as that's not what he was expecting, but realizes there's no backing out now. It is also taught that it is forbidden to interfere with a duel to the death. Anyway, the fight progresses. It looks like the local leader will cut Tiravim in two. Then Vo, leaving uh, her love interest, uh, the woodcutter, to see what all the hubbub is about, enters the scene to see Tiravim in danger. Showing some of that increased bloodlust I want Vos are having over the course of these stories, which ultimately feeds into her and Tiravam having a falling out in the last one, she hurls one of two hand axes that she carries with herself into the skull of the local leader, saving her best friend. The local leader being killed by an interloper, Vo, sets the locals off, and so it is time to run before they all get in on the fight and uh, just slaughter Vo and Tiravam. So, they start running, and then find out that the locals are actually not going to all gather around and fight them, you know, however many, couple hundred or whatever, to two. They are going to sick that very frightening, very large, I'm thinking like, you know, 15 feet tall or something like that, unusually intelligent ape on the pair of them. As they're fleeing, the guy Vo was falling in love with, the woodcutter, steps in the way to be like, hey, hang on, guys, let's not do this. I like her, by the way. And the ape just bites into his skull, pulls it open, eats his brains like eating a walnut or something, like real easy. Is eating brains the way this large ape became unusually intelligent? Maybe. I'm going to leave that ambiguous. <laughs> so yeah, chase, chase, chase. Vo and Tiravam get ahead because the ape stopped to eat the woodcutter's brains, and they reach the lip of the volcano. Vo and Tiravam there have a serious argument that nearly comes to blows. It starts with Vo chastising Tiravam for creating this situation, then quickly spirals into personal stuff. Remember, nobody can hurt you more than the person you like the best and who knows you the best, right? And ultimately, an argument over whether or not to destroy the small little idol that they've been carrying this whole story hoping to sell by chucking it into the volcano. Well, how are they going to resolve this? Well, neither of them can argue the other one into submission, and they are not ready to pull blades on each other. They're still very good friends. So I thought, what if they have the third flighting match of the story, our two protagonists against each other, and the flighting judge, perhaps fleeing the angry locals, locals in quotation marks, stumbles upon Vo and Tiravam, provoking the idea of flighting in the first place, after he explains that the locals in quotation marks and the pirates are busy and unlikely to pursue Vo and Tiravam for a while. Uh, so that therefore it's decided, you know, they've got time <laughs> for this flighting match and he shall judge. I'm thinking perhaps what creates the situation is that Tiravam's pirate lover or lovers, remember there's been three in the last couple of days, dare to head off to help Tiravam only for the locals quotation marks to interpret this as betrayal cue the cultists slash locals whatever and the pirates going at it in a big fight this is why the flighting judge fled the village but got turned around in the jungle perhaps and ended up climbing the mountain to get a better idea of how the conflict back at the boat near the boat you know was going not well given the pirate ship and the locals village are both on fire so yes sort of the flighting high point of the story we get to see our two protagonists flight against each other and it gets very very personal and very very insulting and then, you know, maybe they're fighting. We don't learn who's the better one, you know? I, like, I kind of like that when you have two protagonists who are fighting and it's like, oh no, we'll never know who's the best warrior or the best uh, debater or whatever because they get interrupted, in this case, by the big smart ape. The ape will tear them apart. This is terrifying. Then Vo tries to distract the ape with the shiny thing that they have, which is the little cosmic horror treasure that's about the size of an egg and in my mind is just like a little gold skull. I'll think of something cooler down the line. The ape picks up the thing looks into its eyes and has something akin to what Tiravim said he had when stealing it a little before this story began, just like this seeing the cosmos and the universe and having all meaning stripped away, you know, kind of thing. 
The ape's face goes ashen. It lets out a long howl, looks around, seeming to have lost all taste for life. And then, you know, maybe Tyrion's like, oh, my goodness, you know, great Mitra or whatever, her, you know, his god is. The ape really is smarter than normal. It's able to have an existential crisis. Bo's like, why didn't I have that experience? And then Tyrion's like, the ape and I are just more in tune with the universe, I guess. Now, I am thinking this might be one little piece of stealth continuity that, you know, you don't have to know it to enjoy the story, but you'll get more if you read all the other stories, right? I've been kind of thinking maybe the entity from Disgrace the Stone at the end of the first act could be keeping an eye on Vo ever since then and occasionally protecting her from certain cosmic things like the artifact. And then I could reveal that at the end of the second act in another story, the gibbet, but I don't know, maybe that's too much continuity. Anyway, the flighting judge steps closer, being like, that thing it's holding does look incredibly valuable. And then the ape bites into his head as it did the woodworker and starts chewing on its brains as it did the woodworker and then cries letting brains, when it took such pleasure in eating the woodworkers, fall from its mouth. Tiravan's like, Vo, put, put your other throwing axe, remember she's got two, put your other throwing axe into its head, we can't let it run off with that thing. Vo looks at the terrifyingly mauled remains of the flighting judge and hesitates, quite understandably. The hesitation means that with tears running down its face, the ape lets out another soul-rending howl at the tiny idol before looking around to notice a smaller ape, a regular-sized one, wander from the woods up to see what's going on. That ape is curious and making eyes at the shiny wee idol. The big smart ape knows what it has to do. Weeping, it clutches the idol to its chest and walks over the edge, falling into the volcano. Gotta protect the wee ape, gotta protect its, its fellows. The volcano rumbles, and it becomes clear it is time to get out of Dodge. Cue, you know, the volcano starting to rumble and explode and then go off, you know, with lava chasing our protagonists down the hill. As they run, Vo tells Teravam she knows of an escape craft. And where we learn that, you know, the woodworker, as it turns out, longed for more in life than being a weirdo pirate cultist on this island. And so he was secretly working on a small vessel to get him back to the mainland when he was basically finished. He actually tried to impress Vo earlier by showing it off. So... Bo and Tiravam get to that boat, a little, that wee boat, roughly the size of the one they were in at the beginning of the story, and get out of there. Cut to, you know, a couple hours later, they're, you know, floating along towards the coastline, and now Vo is bummed out, because a guy that, actually, she was kind of, you know, it was, it was as early as it can possibly be, but she kind of started falling in love at first sight there, you know? This is me swapping around how the relationships tend to go with these two. Remember I mentioned Tiravam loves love, so Tiravam just kind of slutting it up on the boat was unusual enough to make Vo concerned. She wasn't actually, you know, slut-shaming Tiravam. And Vo, who's absolutely enjoying her slutty years, as it were, in her uh, late 20s in this entire corner of the book, falls uh, in love at first sight. So yeah, she's pretty bummed that the woodworker died and the treasure that they were going through all this crap for is lost. And Tiravam is kind of high on life, thus flipping their moods uh, from what they were like at the very beginning of the story, right? I just said why Bo is bummed out. Why is Tiravam high on life? Well, in a big part, he's feeling a lot better now that that cosmic horror vision treasure has been destroyed unequivocally. It also doesn't hurt that the pirate's operation of scooping up all kinds of people and then selling them to be poured into a volcano has almost certainly been ruined by the volcano going off. If nothing else, I imagine I'll have it swamp over the village and also because the quote-unquote locals on the island who were sacrificing all those villagers are either all dead or mostly dead and whoever's left doesn't trust the pirates anymore because of the events of this story. So hey, you know, Tervim's feeling a lot better. In fact, they're feeling so peppy that they flight with the cosmos, basically rattling off some poetic insults at the stars themselves. The stars, of course, don't say anything back. That's what the cosmos does. But Vo likes it and is heartened by it. And that's what matters. Bringing it back to friendship. The end. Quick shout out to Nat Webb, previous guest of the show, for helping me figure out a couple of little things with that order of information part of the outline. And so yeah, with all those story beats figured out, all that was left to my mind was to work through my sort of usual checklists I've mentioned in many other episodes where I list seven kinds of things that are not conflict, discovering, relating, finding, losing, bearing, parting, changing, whatever, and seeing, you know, where those might be in the story so it's not, you know, nothing but conflict driving the story. 
my checklist of types of conflict, you know, half dozen of them, you know, contrary opinion, struggle against circumstance, whatever. And my sword and sorcery checklist slash litmus test, I suppose you could say, from Brian Murphy's excellent book on the genre, Flame and Crimson, A History of Sword and Sorcery, which is dark and dangerous magic. Yep. Personal and mercenary motivations. Yep. Horror slash Lovecraftian influences. Oh, yeah. Short episodic story. Yep. Inspired by history. A little bit. The history of pulp writing stories, I suppose. And outsider heroes, as ever, yes, Foe and Tiravam are outsiders in the tale. And yeah, the absolutely last thing I did was to go back to the beginning of all of my notes for this, review it, see if any questions or thoughts of things I could add or whatever came to mind while I did that, wrote them down, it was about a page of just quickie notes, left some space in case more stuff came to mind later while working on other stories about how, oh, you know, I could go back and change this or whatever, and done. Story outlined. Hurrah. All right. I hope you'll join me for the next episode, which will be the outline of the final story of this quarter of the book, the Bafford and Grey Masterish, Vaux and Tiravam swashbuckling type tales, where we go back to Coltoom for a tale called, for the time being, Carry Me from Coltoom, the story of Vaux and Tiravam's friendship coming to a close, which will bring us to the exact middle of the novel. And I'm also going to discuss in that all kinds of big epiphanies and thoughts I had about how this whole project is going, thoughts that I hope will guide me towards a more refined, quicker method of doing this thing. So I'm Writing a Novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, that's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.